Greg. News. Oh, wait. Do you have something no, else you want to talk about? You don't about start today? immediately in the news, Greg. How dare okay. you? All, All right. right. Sorry, I, have, I have many thoughts and many things I need to get off my chest. One, in these harsh, terrible times where impeachment is looming at our doorstep, it's, it's important to have that kind of release, that kind of the way that you, we, we release the tension. And for me, currently, it's the masked singer. And I want to say that this season is going to be better than the next one. But honestly, I can't because there's a skeleton now and it's too spooky. All right. There's too much. There's too much horror going on. And I'm I'm scared. All right. Mostly because also I'm pretty sure it's Martin Short in there and he's too good for this. I don't know why he's doing this. (laughs) Is he, though? I mean, he did. I'm sure he thinks it's some kind of like fun lark. It's not because he's desperate for money. That is true. Yeah, I guess, he's, he seems like he's having a good time, or at least as good of a time. I mean, yeah. the weird thing is watching the show. A, I like watching the show because I feel like I'm in RoboCop. Like, it's come okay. to this. Like, yeah. you know, OCP is going to buy our, my town any day now. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> but then also the joy of it is they, they, they can't give away too much, and they obviously can't express themselves underneath, like, the 10-pound helmets that they have to wear. So it's like... They well, have how to, do like... they even sing through those things? That's what I... As somebody who oh, has it's never all, it's seen all a second of the show, but has been inundated with <laughs> ads from it uh, during football games on Fox, mm-hmm. how oh, exactly do they sing and dance through Because those, after, after they get revealed to be, uh, spoiler alert, the egg turned out to be Johnny Weir, like we all okay. knew it. Um, you know, I didn't know like, that. That's my other problem, too. Egg, not as cool as the bunny in the straight jacket from the first season. That I do remember. <laughs> These costumes, yes. not as good as for season one. I gotta be honest. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, so after that, they have to, they give their now uh, unmasked rendition, but it's literally the same song because they're just lip syncing. Like, there's a okay. backing track. So that's, because... Wait, so they're actually singing, too, even though I know one last year was Terry Bradshaw. Oh, he yeah. has no singing chops. No, and he went home, like, in five minutes. Okay. Yeah. I, I, so it just it's just a celebrity, which I guess opens up the field. It's not like the panel of judges, right? There's a panel of judges, <laughs> uh, which tickled me just thinking about that. Like. <laughs> so there, there seems like there is more of an emphasis this season to make them look at least a little bit smarter. Um, granted, that is an impossible task that the writers yeah. do their best to work on. So now when they actually... Wait, uh, John, are you saying that Ken Jong isn't coming up with these brilliant missives on the fly? <laughs> he's well, prepared Jong... these bits. He's, he's prepared, like, standing up and, and doing his, like, you know, very energetic thing. Greg, look, Ken Jong was put on this planet for one particular reason, for an agent to give him anything, and he will not say no. So <laughs> no. thank God for Ken Jong. He's doing the Lord's work. Um but no, like the, now when the judges actually guess, like it's actually a realistic guess. Whereas like the first season, they were like, "Could be Lady Gaga." It's like, yeah, really, Lady Gaga is going to be on the Masked Singer. Good job, guys. Yeah, yeah. And that's the problem when I'm watching the show is like all I can think about is like, all right, who's desperate enough to have to need to do this show? Like that's always in the forefront of my head. Is it really desperation, or is it more like the ah. attention? I can't imagine they're getting paid a lot to yeah. be on the show, and well, also the idea is not. It, the for, for the first ninety percent of their appearance, they're not actually on. Their face isn't visible. I guess that's so. True. I I don't think it's based out of vanity in the same way that say Dancing with the Stars is. Um, nor nor is it as a big a commitment uh, to than Dancing with the Stars <laughs> is because they have to train and actually do proper dance routines. Here it looks like they kind of barely move in these heavy costumes for about fifteen minutes. I mean, Johnny Weir was complaining the whole time. He was like, oh, I thought figure skating was easy after this. I don't know why I gave him a southern <laughs> no, Yeah, he's not southern, but okay. 
Oh, I hate myself. I <laughs> just gave him like the most fey accent imaginable. Anyway. That's, oh, yeah, John. That, that's that's where you went wrong. Give me yes. a Johnny Weir a fey accent. <laughs> anyway, Mass Singer. Uh, mini spotlight i guess it's not a good show yeah. i don't like myself for watching it but there there we here we are okay this well, is <laughs> this is this is my confession well john i'm mm-hmm. glad you brought that up while we uh intro the news you're a fucking newsman don i ever tell you otherwise you punch me in the face the news yeah because with donald trump as president impeachment proceedings are going to look like the mass singer new rule real time bill maher Ugh, I, I don't hate myself as much anymore. Now I hate you, yeah. most of all. <laughs> as you should. John, I've got a topic I want to bring up with you. Okay, do it. And it pertains to the box office. Obviously, we love talking about the box office. It's the arbiter of quality. Yes. Capitalism is the ultimate arbiter of taste. So let's hear yeah. it. As we record this, the number one film at the box office was Abominable, an mm-hmm. animated feature film starring an abominable snowman. Not the Smallfoot one, in which Zendaya was Michi. I believe <laughs> Zendaya is also a voice in this movie, but she is not playing Michi. She's playing a human. What was the one done by Leica Animation? Missing Link? The missing Link, yes. Yes, okay. That's, right. not, that's not an abominable snowman, though. Yeah, but he eventually, it, he turns out he's a he's he's a, a Bigfoot, but it turns out he was an ancestor of Yetis. They have to go to the Himalayas in that one, too. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm shocked. That's why <laughs> normally these animated features are bastions of creativity, yet we have to... <laughs> and weirdly, like, DreamWorks having to follow Leica is kind of embarrassing. Like, I know they're always trend chasers, but it's like, come on. Leica has, like, four years behind DreamWorks. everybody else. Well, that's what I wanted to bring up. Is, mm-hmm. uh, DreamWorks is not... Usually they were uh, not riding the coattails, but kind of a close second to Pixar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now they've fallen off the fallen off the face of the earth in terms of uh, quality. Now they've got all these other uh, like illumination has taken their. Second. I want to point you to a classic called Megamind. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, John. It's regardless of all the video essays you saw in Megamind, <laughs> the one thing I wanted to point out is this movie is explicitly made for China. Mm-hmm. So it stars Chinese actors taking place mostly in China. And I believe their their plan is to return the abominable snowman to its uh, Himalayan ancestral grounds. Indeed. And I thought it's it's a shame that we're not appreciating this because it's so clearly uh, another culture coming to dominate their film market. Um, in mm-hmm. this case, China coming to uh, be number one at the U.S. box office. When for so many years, <laughs> American films have dominated international box offices. So I'm I'm actually glad. And, and somewhat uh, heartened to see that other countries are coming in and kind of diversifying uh, our film slate. I mean, it's never a bad thing to yeah. have the cultural exchange. I mean, with all these tariffs going around, am I right, yeah, folks? Yes. Am I right, folks? Yeah. Folks. Yeah. I'd, I'd say Abominable was number one at the box office, but due to Trump tariffs, it's number five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little disappointed, though, because it dethroned my top pick, and what I was grateful for to see at number one, Downton Navi, the movie. <laughs> and I was kind of surprised that, well, I mean, thinking about it, at, like, for a hot second, I thought, like, wow, I can't believe that got number one. It's like, oh, wait, what is it opening up against? Yeah. And I f- do forget how popular that show was in America. Yeah, September is not exactly prime time. Theaters, hence why these relatively small movies, like, obviously, Abominable is not going to compete with, say, a Toy Story sequel. No, in terms of box not. office grosses, mm-hmm. but it did wind up number one. Now, my only thing is I wish it wasn't so cynical. Mm. 
like this is designed this is a, a product designed to print money and i'm not sure having not seen the movie like is there any like kind of cultural expression that they want to say uh being a chinese produced film or say being a chinese produced film designed for america is there anything they could say there i mean you you talked about a film the farewell mm-hmm. that does talk about kind of the immigrant experience and and culture the u.s the culture of the U.S. versus the culture of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't look like Abominable covers any of that. Now, granted, it is a family film. So, <laughs> Well, Greg, I, I believe I've spotlighted before another Chinese-produced animated film called Next Gen that's currently on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I was... Uh, maybe we do struggle a bit trying to read too much into these things, wondering, like, because of the cultural exchange, like, what... And knowing that, you know, the Chinese government is quite famous for its propaganda, we can't help but wonder, like, what are they trying to say here, guys? I mean, because they're... I've only seen the trailers. I can only uh, surmise that there's some kind of evil government entity or some kind of evil private corporation that's trying to take the Yeti for their own nefarious purposes. So, um, seems like they're just trying to make straight-up kitty fare from this part, but who knows? I mean... The Chinese government. They're wily. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we shouldn't talk about a film we haven't seen. I don't know. I, no, no. I think we're, uh, we're we're smart enough. I think we can do that. <laughs> That's Fair all enough. matters, right? If yeah. you're smart enough, you can prejudge these things. Exactly. Yes, clearly. Um, <laughs> we have the we have the right brain pan for it. Mm. Um, our brains are so galaxy, guys. Exactly. The, all the lobes <laughs> in our skull indicate that we uh, can judge films from afar. Yes. I mean, that's why we do this podcast. Oh, yes. wait wait a minute. We're doing a podcast right now, aren't we? Exactly, John. Let's talk about a film that we did see for the very first time, you and I. Mm-hmm. We are trying to expand our film bona fides, and so that even that means uh, expanding to the classics that maybe are, uh, let's say, a little more schlocky, a little more campy, <laughs> a little more fun. I, I wish, but uh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> oh, oh dear. What we're talking about, yes, since it is now October, it's now officially Halloween month. It's Lever season, baby. Let's go wild. <laughs> <laughs> that was my We are back. looking at horror films, and we're stretching all the way back to the 50s, kind of classic golden era Hollywood, and the classic 1958 horror movie, The Blob. <laughs> All right, so a lot of a lot of yeah. discussion has. But been enough made. about U.S. foreign policy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to make a joke like, oh, but enough about the American waistline. <laughs> good one. That's a good one too. <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to say, I was going to open this discussion by saying a lot has been made about title cards, and you know the great work of of graphic designers like Saul Bass and how the opening title card can set the mood and the tone of the movie. Guys, the debate's been settled. The greatest opening title card of any movie is The Blob, and we're done. Come on, I, it opens with the just fun little jazzy score, which you think, oh, it can't get any more perfect than this. And then the lyrics come in. <laughs> look out. Yeah, the lyrics out. were an unexpected it comes twist. The Blob. <laughs> it bounces, it creeps, it sweeps, it sweeps. It's so funny. 
Yeah. And you've got this perfect little like abstract squiggle that's expanding. It's so great. I loved every second of it. Yeah. So let's set our kind of expectations out on the table. Mm -hmm. You and I are very cynical older millennials, I think is where we qualify. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of a 50s horror movie, we think kitschy, we think campy, we think like painfully earnest, maybe technically inept. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, our impression is uh, uh, mystery science theater movies that you can laugh at and and throw japes at the screen. Mm -hmm. The Blob, I think, is what makes it notable is uh, maybe we'll talk about how effective it is as a horror film. But I think there's an element of self-awareness in that. It's like, it feels like a very postmodern horror film. A, as you said, the kind of light jazzy score into it. Like, you know, you're coming in to have a good time. You're not really coming in to feel like sinister vibes, like, say, uh, Eyes Without a Face or Psycho. You know, mm-hmm. that's contrast the opening sequence uh, or the opening title cards to Psycho to this. <laughs> that's true. And suddenly, yeah, what, what is supposed to be a very, like, a kind of gripping experience versus this, which is supposed to be a little bit more lighthearted and fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that, and then there's also the fact that the plot centers around the characters going to a, a, a spook show, a, a, a double bill kind of cheesy horror film that, that teens would go to to pass the time mm-hmm. back in the day. So I feel like this movie was made, it's it feels like kind of the first postmodern horror movie in well, terms I... of producing kind of fare that's designed uh, to be a little bit more on the cheekier, lighthearted side. Yeah, and one of the things I do, like, we we talked about this a few weeks ago when I talked about Ginger Snaps. Like, I wonder if, though, I didn't do too much research into it, but I do have a sneaking suspicion this probably was one of the earliest quote-unquote horror movies that centered around teenagers. And teenagers are kind of a perfect subject for horror movies because, and especially because of this movie, they are not quite adults, so they're not taken seriously, but they're also mm-hmm. at the phase in their life where they are kind of saddled with adult responsibilities. Yeah, very vulnerable and, characters. Exactly. And so this movie is classic teenage setup. They're ruffians. They're ne'er-do-wells. They're just going out and to have a good time. But uh, Steve, played by Steve McQueen. Oh, this yes. is perfect. His, his name matches his character's name. Perfect. Exactly. 27 years old at the time of filming. And looks every <laughs> and looks about 37 um, due to the smoking you see. Yes, classic Hollywood. Yeah. He... he fears that there's a monster abound you know the doctors disappeared his patients disappeared something Mm. is amiss here and no one takes him seriously everyone thinks that this is some kind of elaborate prank that he's set up yeah classic boy who cried wolf exactly and like boy who cried blob (laughs) (laughs) and so the one moment of kind of introspection that happens probably between like the second and third act if we can even call him max is Mm -hmm. he even doubts himself and he has a connected moment with his you know girlfriend the you know bird he's trying to romance um yeah. he doubts himself like am i even sure of what i saw maybe my imagination's running wild on me and again like i think i don't know if this is one of the earliest movies that kind of captured that kind of like teen angst but i think it does actually a pretty good job at it or at least because you know when you're dealing with teenagers you can kind of play on this aspect of heightened emotion and this certain level of campiness which i kind of bought hook line and sinker i enjoyed it quite a bit i had a lot of fun watching this movie i did too and i think part of it is steve mcqueen mm-hmm. as you said like not just fortunate in the fact that he is sharing uh, the name with his with his character <laughs> mm-hmm. but also like he he sells it like 
we're, I'm so grateful for these little movies that do give you a glimpse of stars and really talented actors, because I earnestly believe every second of Steve. He gets to be charming when he plays off like a prank with the with the police officer. As you said, he gets to intone the seriousness. Like, jeez, I don't know what I saw. Mm-hmm. And even though he's 27 years old, like I did buy him as a as a high schooler, and he gets to be like a star. He gets to play all these different modes and be completely convincing in them. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite bit is the well kind of go to the very end but again it's a small low budget horror movie like they they didn't have exa- a huge special effects budget and at one point the blob has to cons- has to be uh towards the end of the movie has to be this giant all-consuming thing and they can't cut away to it so instead steve has to like twist around and says like it's covering the whole building and i believed him 100 percent. i'm like yes steve you're right <laughs> and that shows like the power of a talented young actor like this mm-hmm. and you can see why he would go on to be a hollywood megastar later that's true. But going back to that, this is quite a low-budget production, and I am disappointed at the certain lack of blob effects. I was kind of, <laughs> That's again, going going into the expectations, and maybe this is colored a bit by the 1988 remake, which, just looking at the cover as a child, going through yeah. <laughs> movies on video, seeing that cover, like, I was already, like, instantly horrified, and I know the legacy of that one is, like, that one's very gung-ho about being, like, gory and nasty and disgusting, as opposed to this one, which is just... Like, when it absorbs someone, it's just like, <laughs> you cut, and it's like, they're gone! <laughs> yeah. And it's not like Jaws. It's not like they were creatively using their limitations with these special effects. No. Instead, it's a it's a ball of silicone jelly kind of <laughs> sitting right there. <laughs> and then Which, they cut back to characters who are like, oh, no, it's it's coming right at us! <laughs> exactly. And then, barely char- and then characters, yeah, cut away to the scene. Characters come in, and they're like, oh, they're, they've completely vanished. Like, there's not even bones left. <laughs> no, yeah. And the other weird thing is that it doesn't really, not until the end does it really escalate or grow in size. Like, I was hoping that there would be some kind of natural progression where it's like the size of a van, you know, by the middle act. But no, it's still it's still pretty much, I, I don't know how you'd describe it, like, it's basically a beanbag chair size for most of the movie. Yeah, I was about to say the size of a small dog, or yeah. wombat is the, is the animal, because <laughs> of its rounded shape. <laughs> that's, the your, only pro- that's your movie, the animal you go to, a wombat? <laughs> yes, that's the... Listen, when you visit Australia, you see wombats in person. You will thank me, and you will say Greg is right. <laughs> okay, fine. That's but not John, the Australian one... animal I'm not worried about, but okay. okay. I'm worried about dumb dingoes. Bill, can you move your truck over to the door and shine your big light into the market? Sure, Dave. Right. Okay. Right. What? Hey, who's in the store? Huh? There's nobody in here but us monsters. Hey, Dave, the theater. John, very important distinction we have to make. You said mm-hmm. there, there's not a lot of progression. Like, I believe, yeah, it remains small until it needs to be giant, and then it's giant. But the the one progression that it does make is in color, mm-hmm. because it starts as a clear, somewhat blue substance, and then as it absorbs bodies, presumably uh, victims' blood, it turns red. 
mm-hmm. read like a certain enemy in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> a certain you... enemy to the United States, John. Is this a big allegory for communism? Well, <laughs> again, yes. we were talking about, you know, what kind of sneaky messages are the Chinese trying to sneak into their into their children's fair? I mean, what secret yeah. messages are in this movie, perhaps? <laughs> I mean, I was looking at it the other way. Here's a massive entity that just keeps consuming and consuming, and it can't be stopped. What does that say about our system, Greg? Hmm? Yeah, I think maybe that also kind of attributes to the film's legacy is how we project these meanings onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, the screenwriter for the movie, Rudy Nelson, famously said, like, uh, what on earth does this author have to say about this movie to fill 23 pages? Uh, especially <laughs> what he thinks he knows is all wrong. Like, the makers behind this had no idea um, mm-hmm. about, you know, communism or U.S. foreign policy. It was actually based on a, a phenomenon called star jelly, which is like morning dew. And so they thought like, oh, that'll be an interesting <laughs> villain if it just grows and grows. That was where the original film came. But I don't know, uh, j- j- not to push back on, on Mr. Nelson, but I believe the reason we ascribe like uh, communist pr- uh, fear and propaganda to this movie is uh, particularly because that was pretty the whole culture back then it's like Mm -hmm. saying oh my breathing has nothing to do with oxygen (laughs) well you can't (laughs) you can't argue that it completely could uh, subsume the entire culture so yeah i think part of it is why we kind of project this 1950s product we project that uh 1950s thinking onto it even if that wasn't the author's intention yeah well one of the things one of the interesting aspects i wanted to talk about is like you said there is this kind of meta moment where they end up at the movie theater And Mm -hmm. what I thought was interesting is part of what characterizes horror and and sci-fi in the 1950s was obviously the atomic age and the fear of the unknown. You know, lots of space aliens and monsters and science run amok. And that's definitely evident here. But when you actually get into horror from the 60s and 70s, what becomes more of the theme is moral decay. You know, the hippies are coming, you know, oh, <laughs> you know, we're losing traditional values. They're not going to church anymore. And so what's funny is that I guess this is kind of late in the 50s, but the movie that they end up going to see at the picture show, like we get very little of it, but it is kind of like another spook movie, but it's about Satan. And it's about like, like again, like going back to that whole theme of like moral decay or something like that. So I think it's kind of interesting, like that contrast and the fact that it's kind of predicting where movies are going. Like, I I wonder if like nineteen and nineteen fifty eight did this feel like a throwback? It's like, oh yeah, let's go see a cheesy monster movie. <laughs> uh, maybe I think it was self consciously advertising itself to the teens of the day and mm-hmm. and maybe putting it in sharp relief. Like, hey, look at that those old cheesy Universal horror movies, monster movies from the thirties. Like, look how much better our movie is. It's in yeah, color. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the effects are better. <laughs> Color by Deluxe, I think I saw on the opening screen. I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Not Technicolor, that's for sure. But no. Yeah. And I think that also, maybe not moral decay, but it does play into a, a lot of the dramatics. Of the, um, in particular, the the towns, the small town police force um, <laughs> who don't, who initially don't believe these teens that there's a, a monster on the loose. Um, one of whom is very uh, strident in his, in his belief that teenagers, uh, they've run amok. They're, they're always lying and just here to cause trouble. Mm-hmm. And the and the lead, uh, who I thought was very convincing, in spite of um, uh, he had a very noticeable scar on his face and <laughs> probably didn't, doesn't have a lot of meaning, leading man chops. Uh, Lieutenant Dave, played by Earl Rowe, does give the does give a character who has a lot more complexity to him than I think uh, this movie typically merits. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I wish maybe they applied some of those dramatics more to the relationship because it starts with Steve and his uh, intended Jane mm-hmm. kind of at, at make-out point. And uh, Steve's trying to make a move, and, and Jane's not really having it. And yeah. I wish the movie was a little bit more about their relationship because then what happens is Steve witnesses the monster uh, consume a, a victim firsthand, mm-hmm. and then Jane just kind of follows along. And so there's, I, I wish it kind of like tied into the relationship or something like that, or that, that pulled me along. Like, are these kids going to wind up together? <laughs> Well, you kind of get that, like, again, I was talking about the, the middle act scene where Steve is doubting himself, and she kind of comes to his aid, comes to his side. You know, a good supportive woman. She yeah. knows what's right. <laughs> she sticks by her man. <laughs> Speaking of, like, hidden messages that might be in movies. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the, the female characters don't get a, a huge amount to do in this movie. No. Uh, the I'm... female character is the the old maid. It's like, no, the doctor's out of town, you stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the worst who gets it is the nurse who makes an emergency call. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and she literally gets paralyzed by the feast. She's like, doctor, I'm so frightened. <laughs> <laughs> well, that scene is that scene involving the nurse and the doctor is like the most MSK, uh, <laughs> mystery science theater ready. Because he's oh, like, quick, yeah. grab acid. If that doesn't yeah. work, get my gun. <laughs> like, yeah, no, nothing works. Yeah, they try one solution, acid, and the nurse immediately says, nothing will stop it. <laughs> I'm glad you said that was the most MST uh, 3K worthy scene yeah. and not my favorite performance in the movie. It turns out that um, our young lovers aren't the only ones in, in threatened not just the movie goes oh so the families oh that's right the families yes and it turns out uh our young intrepid uh, jane has a younger brother named danny oh and this is my i want to go out and see the blonde don't make right? fun don't make fun okay danny justice for danny I, it was the most earnest performance in the movie all right if you've ever been around kids this is exactly how they talk this is exactly how they act and I would argue the bravest, because what what does he do when confronted by a blob? He takes his toy six shooter. He's a cowboy, you see. <laughs> Fires impotent blanks at it. When the no, when those don't work, he throws the gun again. The only one with any real solution at it. Though the poor nurse and doctor are like, oh, what do I do? I can't. And they get consumed immediately. Not Danny, the bravest, most courageous, most intrepid character in this whole picture. Yeah. I loved him. No. He's great. He was only doing it so he could get a dog at the end. He just needed that monetary <laughs> reward. That's exactly, all he cared yeah. about. I, I cynically was thinking, like, okay, who, which producer's kid is this? <laughs> <laughs> Although, and again, in classic uh, disaster movie slash sci-fi uh, movie trope, the dog gets away. And they yes. have to specify that. It's like, I think they probably got a studio note. No, 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 that we can't have the dog get eaten. And so someone yeah. says, like, don't worry, the dog got away. <laughs> yeah. In sharp contrast to Jaws, where the dog does get eaten, and you know how serious business this is. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. yeah. The blob is not exactly serious. It's pretty light fare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's I, only, like, how many people die in this movie? Maybe only, like, four? Yeah. Uh, four victims that we know of. Mm-hmm. The the doctor, the nurse, the obviously the old man who brings it into town. Yeah. The auto mechanic, and yeah, that's about it. Oh, I guess there's two auto mechanics. Well, one leaves. He yeah. doesn't get consumed by the blob. I, I don't believe, but okay. Yeah. Actually, so low... yeah, I I'm kind of glad, glad you brought up that scene because I think this movie would have been way more interesting if it did play a little bit. Maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit, but <laughs> yeah. if they played with the ambiguity that the maybe the blob didn't really exist or something like that. But again, just before we do get that doubting scene where Steven tones that maybe he's crazy, we do get the scene of the two auto mechanics and one getting consumed. So it's like, yeah, we know the threat is real. So I think it would have been more interesting if maybe 
did kind of play with his perceptions. Maybe if he was on the wacky tobacco, he was doing a jazz <laughs> cigarette before then. Can't trust your own brain, kid. Yeah, John, you're giving you're giving the movie way too much credit. Again, no, people right. weren't going to the drive-in to get cerebral experiences. <laughs> Page um, one rewrite. Like, oh, we already missed the 60-year anniversary, so I know. We should have well, been, it I, should have been written into law. Every 30 years, you have to remake the blob. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up because it ends with um, they don't know how to kill it. And I did like this final setup because I was earnestly wondering, like, how the heck are they going to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, it consumes an entire diner, and nothing will, wor- will work. Bullets, flames, like nothing. And it looks like our, our heroes are literally going to succumb to this monster. Until earlier, they, they figured out that the blob wouldn't chase them into a freezer, so they take a, an old CO2 fire extinguisher mm-hmm. and spray it down until it finally does shrink and and basically becomes inert mm-hmm. and that's when their final solution is to drop it in the arctic and and steve ominously intones like foreshadowing uh, yes i uh it will be fine as long as the arctic stays cold mm. dun 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 this movie's really about global warming because the arctic isn't staying cold and now oh. the blob hence diseases who have that have been frozen under the arctic ice for millennia and millions of years mm. are going to come to the fore and, and kill us all so this is true also if yeah. it were i assume in the 80s remake there was more of a kind of government conspiratorial cover-up like here it's like don't worry the government's arrived we can trust them everything's gonna be great yeah. No one's going to screw uh, this up. Well, I was also wondering, is is the 1988 remake a period piece? Because mm-hmm. a lot of movies in the 80s were looking back to Reagan's <laughs> City on a Hill. <laughs> the nonsense. <laughs> so it would make point. sense if it was like a remake and harken back to those kind of cheesy cheesy days of 50s movies. Or is it set in the present day and only tonally kind of matches that? I don't know. I mean, maybe we should have watched both. We should have turned this into a double bill, Greg. Maybe. We don't have that kind of time. (laughs) No, we don't. What are they going to do with that thing, Dave? Well, the Air Force is sending a Globemaster in. They're flying it to the Arctic. It's not dead, is it? No, it's not. Just frozen. I don't think it can be killed. But at least we've got it stopped. Yeah, as long as the Arctic stays cold. We do have good ideas. Yes, we missed the 30-year cutoff, but remake the blob today, mm-hmm. have it thaw out due to global warming, Yep. and make it, as you said, John, more psychologically terrifying. Make it a Blumhouse picture. Exactly. Um, I want it dark and gritty. Mm-hmm. I want uh, the not just the whole town but maybe like a like a city maybe a hipster conurbation like a like a like a um, a, a weho or yeah. um... well i mean you definitely need some kind of like culture clash so yeah, yeah. maybe set it in like uh uh i don't know ooh 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 because blumhouse is like very like woke quote unquote let's have it take oh, place right. in a black neighborhood and the police aren't there to help them hmm? oh mm-hmm. there you go yeah. yeah the cops don't trust the the black folk and the black folk don't trust the cops huh eh? it's like the purge all over again yes you're right mm-hmm. good point talk about yeah class mm-hmm. and race or at least only nod towards it um <laughs> exactly maybe maybe you can engage it yeah i should give them more credit for engaging in it than Say other crap from Disney, for instance. <laughs> girl boss. <laughs> Hashtag girl boss. Yeah, check out Lindsay Ellis's latest uh, video essay. Very good. Yep. But The Blob, I, I was surprised. I'd say, earnestly, a, a good horror film. Not not as kitschy, maybe, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Like, not a mystery science theater movie. Um, not technically perfect. I was a little annoyed how they couldn't get the focus right sometimes. Yeah, um, exactly. 
But come on, it was a it was a movie made on the cheap. I mean, don't set your expectations too high. Don't expect Psycho or Jaws, like that no, kind yeah. of level horror. Yeah. I mean, again, like you can't help but, at least for me, these movies always will have a certain level of charm because of those technical flaws and because of just the style of filmmaking and acting that was acceptable back then. So. Maybe yeah. that maybe that kind of colors my opinion too much. Maybe that's not a really fair assessment of it. My my brain isn't galaxy enough to be completely objective. <laughs> no, but um, I I do think it has a lot of value today. Mm-hmm. Like I was glad I saw it, and yeah, I I can see like why it's been remade and still has this legacy. Like, geez, it's on the Criterion Collection. And <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of the weird thing about the Criterion Collection is they do also try to preserve a lot of more kind of campier forgotten pictures. One of the kind of big ones I've noticed that was on the Criterion Collection is Equinox. Have you ever heard of that one? No. It's objectively like not a very good film because it was literally like a fan film. It was like just a bunch of friends who kind of got together and wanted to basically recreate, emulate like the movies that they'd been watching on the drive-in. So it's really not that good, but it's like technically for a bunch of like you know, amateurs. Like. Yeah, amateurs. It's actually uh, the special effects that can kind of pull off is impressive. And then I think the other reason why it's worth preserving is because all the people who work on that film ended up having long-lasting careers working under like Ray Harryhausen and stuff like that. So okay, yeah, nice. They, yeah. Thank you for not pointing out the obvious examples. Like um, Night of the Living Dead is where my mind went, uh, and of course Spine Number One Thousand, <laughs> the classic. <laughs> Uh, I forget what era Godzilla, because obviously they preserved the original Godzilla. That's an artistic achievement. You know, mm. Rich with subtext about the nuclear bomb. The rest of them are just cheesy, you know, <laughs> guy in a suit doing karate and dance Greg, moves. <laughs> I could, don't get me started. I can go on for three hours about the subtext of Godzilla versus Megalon, okay? Right. Okay, you're right, you're right. Don't sorry, even get sorry. me started. When Ultraman right. pops up, that's when you know he's representative of... Blah blah blah. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll, I I look forward to reading those essays when I do get spine one thousand. Oh no, they're going to be video essays, Greg. I'm going to be putting them on YouTube. Oh okay, all right. Duh. Trying to get the Generation Z to listen, Greg. All right. All right. Yeah. No one reads anymore. God, that's for squares. I know. It's a shame. <laughs> what am I going to do for a living? I'm useless. <laughs> you are. You should have known better. English degree. Look what it got you. A pretty good job, but uh, whatever. <laughs> pretty, he said through clenched teeth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Greg, I can't spotlight capitalism. That's for sure. No, no. I, I do worry that we bring up to politics a little bit too much. Um, you can, you, you, there are a gazillion other podcasts you can go to for that. <laughs> Greg, we're, we're chasing that love it or leave it movie, or love it or listed uh, money. That's what we're doing. Come on. Le- love it or leave it, you mean? Love, love it or listed as an HGTV oh, TV fuck show. Damn it. Whatever. <laughs> I don't care. I don't, listen, I don't listen to it anyway. But that, you yeah, know, we're tra- we gotta, we gotta catch up on these Ben Shapiro's and all these other uh, uh, political commentators. God, I don't want to follow the tread there, pal. <laughs> all right, let's let's go another direction, John. Let's let's be more earnest. Okay. Let's talk favorably about something we really love. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we reserve for the end of every episode, and it's called Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. I know, I know we didn't want to talk too much about politics, but uh, I do kind of have two uh, things I can recommend that are under the same vein. They're two new uh, comedy specials by two veterans, two greats 
who um, I think are very much kind of in their comfort zone, but then every once in a while kind of transcend it and remind us of why they are greats in the first place. The first one I want to recommend is Quality Time by Jim Gaffigan. Okay. I, John, I got nervous. I started to pull my collar and <laughs> <laughs> afraid you were going to talk about a certain comedian that doesn't believe uh, sexual assault survivors. So. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, granted, uh, the one I have to talk about next is pretty problematic, but yeah. uh, I want to talk first about Jim Gaffigan, who, um, look, I'll just... America's sweetheart. I'll put my cards on the table. Like, Beyond the Pale is the one kind of comedy special I can point to that got me into stand-up comedy. I can't think of mm. any more kind of specials i watched that were like transformed i guess it's like my equivalent to raw or something yeah that's true that's yeah he's our generation's raw <laughs> which is sad to think about yeah google him and search jim gaffigan in case you don't know what he looks like and then compare that to eddie murphy delirious well i guess okay so um i wasn't a big fan of his last one noble ape i thought he was kind of going a little too quickly and obviously he had to bring up the fact that his wife almost died from a brain tumor and had to have emergency yeah. surgery. And that's like, uh, for any normal comedian, I, I don't want to say normal comedian, but for kind of uh, any comedian, that would be like a, a great source of material for him to like plumb. And I don't think Jim Gaffigan really could do that because Jim Gaffigan is not kind of a, a, a kind of introspective comedian. Like, he's very much a one-liners and very much kind of a surface-level comedian, which is fine. Yeah, I'm not observation. Saying a... yeah he's, he's observational and, yeah, has great one-liners. Um, that's not a bad his, thing. His that's trademark, Yeah, and his trademark in Beyond the Pale and a lot was that being self-referential and self-deprecating with a, with a silly voice. Exactly. Um, I don't know if he does that in this latest special, but, yeah, like, not somebody you expect to get into, like, personal territory or, like, have funny asides about your wife's near-death experience. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I think uh, Quality Time is kind of more of a return to form. It's definitely much closer to structure than Beyond the Pale. Uh, in that one, he went on for like nine minutes about bacon. This one, it's ten minutes about horses. And okay. again, he does the classic silly voice. Like, that's got to be the end of the horses jokes. <laughs> <laughs> There's this other you event called dressage. Yeah. <laughs> and then goes on for like another five minutes nice. about horses. Um the other kind of thing I want to bring up the fact is that he's getting less and less relatable because obviously he's a huge megastar now and he's touring worldwide with his family. So pretty much all his bits in this special come from the fact that he's traveling with his family, like going on safari or traveling to Amsterdam or something like that. Yeah. Which you ever again, notice how people in St. Kitts eat their lobster like this? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but uh, but again, and the, he he still keeps it funny. And again, like. I loved Beyond the Pale, and it reminded me a lot. It brought me back to that, you know, nostalgic feeling of watching Beyond the Pale again for the first time. And of course, uh, he talks about he he closes it with his trip to Ireland, and uh, just uh, I'll I'll spoil the bit. He talks about how oh you're from New York, I love New York, and I love your artists like Billy Schwale. Who? <laughs> you know, he was just in town the other day, Billy Schwale. I who? Who? You know, scenes from an Italian restaurant, Billy Schwale. <laughs> Do you mean Billy Joel? No, I'm pretty sure it's Billy Schwale. <laughs> Even his accent work is just getting better with time. Brilliant. Yep. Well, yeah, because he's, he's probably a 90% potato. I mean, I think. <laughs> I think that was a joke in. Uh, I think that was a joke in Beyond the Pale. It's like the reason I look like this because my father is from Sweden and my mother's a polar bear. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which uh, brings me along to another comedian who just came out with a uh, special. This one kind of a bit more problematic, but you know, he, he turns it around in the second half, and that's Bill Burr and his yeah. new Netflix special, uh, Paper Tiger. Have you gotten a chance to watch this one yet? No, I haven't had a chance to watch this one yet. Part of it is because I didn't feel the immediacy. The other half, i got to admit, I was influenced by the online discourse. And I, you and I, I think, are Billboard fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a bit unfair, like, how he's held up as this, like, kind of snooty, like, oh, triggered much? Like, I'm going to go raw material. Because he is also very self-aware, very self-deprecating. And um, even though his material does kind of go there, he's, 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 he's a talented enough comedian to know that the room's not going with him. And <laughs> either changes it up or goes, like, you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy like oh wait a minute maybe I am the crazy one (laughs) yeah and that's and that's the frustrating thing about Paper Tiger because yes for the first half it is that you know that shticky terrible and the Me Too movement and you wouldn't accept it if a man did like you know just like the worst like tone deaf like these feminists aren't very bright like bullshit and it's like oh Billy why just cut it out and if you can struggle through that first half uh, he does have an interesting kind of bit about woke actors and, like, who's allowed okay. to play what part. <laughs> yeah. Like, he talks about how Brian Cranston got crap for playing a quadriplegic. Yeah, yeah, but if you cast a quadriplegic in that role, that wouldn't be acting. He just has to sit there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Um, but, yeah, his whole anti-feminist rant is just really kind of in poor taste and really kind of beneath him. But then... In the second half, yes, he returns to that kind of self-referential stuff, gets introspective, talks about his daughter and how he's like expected to be a father now, and then gets into his own toxic masculinity. And I was like, where was this? How does this match up? And maybe, again, like it was an intentional thing because he brings a callback at the end, which is absolutely brilliant. And again, reveals that why he is one of the greatest stand-up comedians currently working today, probably of all time. But again, like, I don't know if it completely excuses just, like, the really hacky first half of it. Like, if you are going to watch it, you know, maybe just skip the first 20 minutes or something like that. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Maybe I'll, yeah, give this one a chance. Mm -hmm. Honestly, there's so much comedy out today. Like, I don't need to, (laughs) it's not like a, oh, no, my well's dry. Like, Jim Gaffigan, please refill it. Like, Have you heard of this Shane Gillis guy? He's hilarious. Yeah. Who, who, who can forget that classic <laughs> bit? Yo, Chinese people are weird. <laughs> <laughs> this Trump guy is awesome. Yeah. Hilarious he in red bit. states, yeah. <laughs> hey, Jim Gaffigan can play in red and blue states, okay? He's what's going to unite us together. So we're saying Gaffigan 2020. Yes, is Gaffigan our, 2020. Is our platform. I mean, his wife Janine is like the perfect Hillary Clinton, let's be honest. I, <laughs> I, maybe. I think she's more like a... a Jane Sanders, because uh, <laughs> if anybody else can fight for free universal health care, I mean. Anyway, John, I have something I want to wholeheartedly recommend. It is much slighter. Mm-hmm. It's probably the lightest thing we've ever done. <laughs> okay. It is. Remember, once I I recommended Twitter feeds on my spotlight. It, that's fair, John. I've I've got something very much in line with that. It's an Instagram feed. Oh no. But not just any Instagram feed, John. John, uh, speaking of America's sweetheart, one of the loveliest men. You'll ever have grace your social media timeline. I'm talking that Bill Oakley. Okay. I mean, I've known many a Bill Oakley in my time, but yes. that Bill Oakley? That Bill Oakley, John, because fans of a certain animated sitcom will remember this name coming up often in the credits, uh, often in yellow over black text. No. Bill Oakley is a longtime writer for The Simpsons, became a showrunner in seasons seven and, uh, and eight, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
and then left it. Futurama has produced some other stuff like um, Mission Hill and Portlandia, things things of that nature, kind of a, a cervic silly comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he does now with all that sweet sweet residual money, John, you know what he does? What? He goes on Instagram, takes fifty nine seconds of your time, and reviews fast food items. Ah. And so. In sharp contrast to every other uh, middle-aged white man on the internet recording from his car who's complaining about immigrants or how the judge was unfair to him in divorce proceedings, um, <laughs> Bill Oakley is an entirely jovial presence. He opens each video with just a, a genial, hey, I'm at uh, X restaurant, going to review this item. <laughs> And he often does a little skit, and he gives kind of an honest assessment of like how delicious the the burger was. It tends to be a burger because he leans towards burgers. Um, well, it is fast food, you know. Yes, I um, mean, don't even get the the discourse started on chicken sandwiches, okay? Uh, well, exactly. And so, like, he has he has he also has little funny skits around the review. Like, obviously, there was the highly anticipated. Uh, Popeye's chicken sandwich. Mm. And so he says, I'm not going to have any frippery or any silliness like that. I'm just going to do a straightforward review. But of course, he ends it like, that's Santa's review of... <laughs> Another one of my personal favorites was, um, it starts out, unlike, it, not, it's not the um, genial, hey, to begin every episode. It's um, him lying in a prone state, just uh, moaning, like, ugh. <laughs> uh, flashback four minutes earlier, like, I shouldn't have eaten that whole thing. Flashback four minutes earlier, it's like, I don't want to eat this whole thing, but I'm going to. It's very good. And then four minutes earlier, it reveals that it's a gigantic Arby's uh, roast beef sandwich with curly fries on it. <laughs> I'm really so, yeah, I'm so, I'm going through the feed right now and I'm really impressed at the consistency of the thumbnails. He seems to get the angle exactly right every time. Absolutely, yeah. So you'll see it in the thumbnails. He basically foregrounds himself. He he all records it himself. Uh, he as he's explained, he gets no money from this. Uh, <laughs> this is just a man no, with that would a lot ruin of free the integrity. Time. <laughs> yeah. This is just a man with a lot of free time, um <laughs> getting uh getting points off uh, his old sitcoms, but um <laughs> He, he frames himself and the fast food behind him, and uh, yeah, just has funny little skits uh, centered around very positive, very genial fast food reviews. Mm-hmm. So it. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, just be careful. Don't do it at. Uh, don't start watching his videos at 11 p.m. Uh, when you should be in bed, because otherwise you might stay up for a while. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah. It does also fit perfectly in that in those the dastardly internet algorithms that just suck you in and you just can't get enough of them. So. <laughs> Oh, so he did Mission Hills. Okay. Yes. All right. Did you not? Did you not hear me earlier? Yeah. Well, no. You kind of you you went really quick, so that's why I missed that. Oh, it, yeah. Excuse me. Yes. No. Listen, listen to this podcast at half speed. Um, <laughs> yeah, everyone's encouraging you to listen to one and a half speed. Uh, uh-uh. uh. This one, you gotta slow down, baby. Yeah. 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 I'm talking real smooth. Yeah. Mm. What do we sound like? Drunk. <laughs> laugh, 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 laugh. <laughs> I was I was gonna try to give it like a an, and tone it with a little Barry White rhythm, you know. I mean, who uh, better than me? <laughs> <laughs> mm. Hey, baby. Now that we've recommended you some sweet sweet content, how about you do us a favor and follow us on our own pages? Yeah, baby. John, people are gonna be too wet hearing <laughs> you, John. <laughs> You're going to be too wet and distracted hearing you to actually subscribe to all of our social media feeds, namely Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Indeed. Ooh, baby. <laughs> See, again, I can't keep then, that up. <laughs> no, thank God. Thank God you can't. 
this is going to be a no but. Yes. <laughs> no but. Don't continue that improv stretch. Instead, go to your podcast service of choice, like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, rate us five stars so that more people can find the show. And then we can continue doing it. We'll feel motivated. We'll start an inspiring snobs community. We'll open a dialogue about all these films. Exactly. And if you really want to do a real dialogue, I'm talking like deep down and personal, like getting real folks, you can always reach out to us at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and recommendations. We're always interested in hearing what our fans want us to watch. Yeah. Now, we didn't take this suggestion from a fan. <laughs> No, again, like this is aspiring snobs, so we have we have a lot of classics we need to catch up on, and one it's actually quite apropos. I was talking earlier about the shift from sci-fi to more kind of horror, uh, into, imbued with the 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 feelings of the devil, of of magic yes. and 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 dark witchcraft, witchery. Yes, spiritually, yes, our our spirits are dripped in this in this <laughs> hippological era. Exactly, that's not a word, but I'm going with it. <laughs> Go for it, and so. They think, John, John, what if we give birth to the devil's son, huh? Oh. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't sound good. No, that, that doesn't sound hot at all. No. He's trying to make this podcast sexy. There's nothing no. more, um, more unsexy than childbirth, especially if it's the devil. Yes. So we will be watching, you and I haven't seen it yet, we'll be watching for the first time ever Rosemary's Baby. Ugh, which, you know, A, we're not big horror aficionados, but also, do we really want to give Roman Polanski any more residuals? Uh. <laughs> we'll, we'll pirate a copy, how about that? Okay. They've, they've made all the money they could. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I just, don't, I just don't want to be celebrating anything problematic, okay? I, exactly. I, <laughs> I don't... Let's just lay our cards out on the table. We do not advocate getting sexually assaulted by the devil and then giving birth to his child. That is... We are very anti that. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Greg. You're a true ally. Indeed, I am. <laughs> on that fantastic end note, <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, this is my fight song. <laughs> Take back my life song. <laughs> <laughs>